following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Okay, so we, we uh, started last week a very complicated, controversial topic. We're trying to be as objective as possible and not get emotional about this. But basically, th it's the greater question we're discussing is when you have a contradiction between science and Torah, particularly um, um, really when we discuss Torah, it's more of the, we're talking rabbinic Torah, Talmudic Torah, because um, not getting into the Bible contradictions or seemingly contradictions. If you're interested in that part, meaning creationism, etc., I recommend highly this book. Um, very a somewhat, it's not really controversial, but in the Orthodox world, it's controversial because it's very objective and brings both all sides of the coin. So it was banned. This book was banned in the Haredi world. So that's why it's a. It's a I suggest no book burning yet. It probably was. I, I, not in my house, but other houses. Um, so anyway, it's very according to that book, is there a, is there a, uh, is there a conflict between creation and? Uh, no, I mean he he. The, the, what's objective about this book is he brings all the all the different opinions. And he's an expert on animals. Yes, actually, he's a zoologist, a cosmologist, I don't know, whatever you call him. But uh, he's he. So he was um, banned based on his, originally his when this book first came out, 2006. He actually got. Um, what's called Haskamot, he got, uh, I don't know what the English word for that is, but um, um, approbations for the book from many leading rabbis, but then when people started reading it and they got all nervous, because he, he basically says that, uh, as we're going to talk about, that sometimes the rabbis can be wrong, believe it or not. <laughs> there are times that rabbis can be wrong, and that's something, as rabbis, we don't like hearing that. <laughs> so, um, so therefore, the book was eventually banned, and therefore, it's in its fifth printing now, because usually that's what happens when you ban a book. It gets more it, right, it gets, it gets more exciting. Yes. It's still banned. Yeah, I mean you can get it on Amazon, but you can't get it in Williamsburg. Can't get it where? In Mayasharim, they won't sell it in Mayasharim. Uh, banned in certain areas. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Uh, so now, so the, so anyway, I'm just recommending if you're interested in the creationism part of the. That whole issue of evolution, he he's very objective in bringing the various sources and and the, the opinions as to um, how that works, uh, etc. Okay, how, how creation yes, matches uh, evolution. Yes, the science of the Torah. But we're, as I said, we're, our objective is not the science of the Torah. That doesn't bother me so much. What bothers me, what I would like to address is more, and since this is a medical ethics class, is when the Talmud discusses um, medical issues or other scientific issues, and it does not jive with contemporary medicine. So how do we how do we take that? How are we supposed to um, understand that? Do we say the rabbis are infallible, and therefore whatever they say is correct? That's what my opinion is. Um, the <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. You can laugh. Um, uh, or, and, and the question is, how does, how does it jive? And ha what happens, and many times it's not just a theoretical discussion, it's actually relevant to halacha. So you have something the Talmud's um, basing their, uh, their halachic decision on, is based on science. And today we have science that's saying that, that science was wrong. So does the halacha change, or does the halacha stay the same? How do we deal with it in a practice? So it's not just a theoretical question, it's actually a very practical question as a 
in as a rabbi in contemporary times what happens when you have contradiction between science and the halacha. So within that, are you saying that the written Torah is presumably that's exactly what God says? We don't have to argue about that. Right, so God is but infallible. That we all agree. I mean, so some, of us agree. Like some of us agree. Some of us agree. The question is, is the God wrote the Torah? But that the assumption is in, in my world that, of course, God did write the Torah. Therefore, yeah, that's no yeah, question. Right. The question only would be how, um, how do we reconcile it? Or do we have to reconcile it? That's number one. Question number two is how do we reconcile If we have to reconcile it, or we just ignore science? That would be one option. So, let me finish my point. Uh, or. Um, no, no, my question is. It's <laughs> <laughs> irrelevant, right? Um, the, the point being is so the Torah is, is a whole different issue because that, um, in a certain sense, yeah, I mean, you're stuck. You have to go with the Torah. The question is can you reinterpret how does it work? And that's one of the things he discusses there is uh, what what we can consider, how much we have to take the Torah practically when we consider certain aspects of the Torah's allegory, etc., especially when it comes to creation. So that's something that is up for discussion in, in how much leeway do we have to interpret the verses. So and that's, so, but as when it comes to the Talmud, it's a different question. So yes. in terms of interpretation, you have the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, then you have the Mishnah, and all the interpretation of what the Mishnahs mean. Now, are you saying within that that the reason that you can question the science of the Talmud, as it were, or the I didn't rabbi, say you can. That's we are. The question is, can you question? That's the question on the table. Underneath that, one of the reasons enables you to question it is the presumption that human beings are interpreting the words of the Mishnah and they are not fa- and they are fallible. Um, well, that's to be seen. I don't, we don't know. That. Okay. I don't know. I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out. And, I, and this is, by the way, this is a work in progress for me too. I never studied this topic in depth, and that's so we're doing it together. But you almost have to assume that because from what you said, the words of the Torah, they can't be changed. Um, but they, they, so no, I'm just saying. That I just yet. said there's a difference between God. There's nothing to talk about as a, as a okay. theologian. You have to, and you believe God wrote the Torah, so then you're stuck with what the, the Torah story. says. Right. The Talmud, the question is, is written by man, as we're saying. So the question is, is there more leeway okay. or not? So that's or do we believe whatever the rabbi's saying? They're saying it from, you know, with Ruach HaKodesh, as we call it, divine inspi- inspiration, and can't mess with them either. I so believe everything the rabbis say, don't you? So <laughs> now... Rabbi, I mean, yes. you know, just at a, at, a, at a really basic level... Yes, this class the, is, is the, very um, basic. Talmud, the Talmud, okay? Yeah. Torah is... Is, is God's word, okay? Yeah. There's still arguments there about uh, what this word means. Uh, and that, but as far as Talmud goes, yes. there's arguments all over the show. And so it not talking about arguments. The question is, let's say, first of all, there's sometimes actually they agree. Yes, sometimes they agree. Sometimes they agree. So again, they can have arguments. The question is, can we argue on them? Meaning, you know what I'm saying? You can argue with your wife. I can't argue with your wife, right? But Manny, again, to, to point out, your, there is a fundamental assumption that there were two Torahs given on Mount Sinai. Right. The written Torah, which is what you're acknowledging as Torah, but Talmud, Mishnah, was part of the oral Torah, also was given right. at Sinai. Yes. Therefore, it has equal power. In a certain, no, in a large right. sense, yes. Yeah, you missed that. So actually, last week uh, you weren't here. That, 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 we discussed that. That the Torah says in the in last week's parsha. That's how we started this topic. Just to go back for a second. Sorry for those that were here. 
last week we discussed the, in last week's parsha the pasuk says lo mi yaminu small that when whatever the leaders of your generation tell you meaning referring to the scholars and the rabbis or or just the Sanhedrin but the Torah says very clearly do not deviate from their words right or left and we said even more that's interpreted by the rabbis to mean even if they tell you right is left and left is right you still have to listen to them mm-hmm. okay so we're that's the question how does does that apply to all of Talmud and we said last week Maimonides most opinions say that that biblical injunction, which is one of the 613 commandments, only applies to the Sanhedrin. Rambam um, broadens that and says it applies Rambam, Maimonides, expands that verse and understands it to mean including the whole Talmud. He quotes it in various laws as that is an injunction even on anything that the Talmud says fits, they have the same level as the Sanhedrin according to Rambam. He's a minority opinion, but he's Rambam, so so we... uh, so, not to put too fine a point, the oral Torah, would that be considered just the Mishnah? Because that's what God told Moses, write this down. Uh, or let me tell you, and then you can write it down. And not the Gemara, all the commentary. That's so, not. No, well, the, the, the Gemara is just many times in, uh, discussion. discussing right, Mishnah. So that's that's all it is. That's our question. The question is, when there's science in there, is that part of the, as Ron is mentioning, this Masorah that we have, that it was given at Sinai? Do we have to assume that or no? Science was based on the science of their times. But we that's, are, so that's we the are question assuming the Mishnah was told to Moses. Mishnah, yeah. yes. Okay. Yes, Mishnah, the oral Torah. Torah Shabbal Peh. The Mishnah, it, down. it was yeah, written right. down yeah. later in, later on. Well, it was called the Torah Shabbal Peh. Yes. 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 So that was given at Sinai. That's Much later. You say, you say it was exactly the same? No, what I'm saying is it was given at Sinai orally. It was yeah. written down in 200... 1400 years later. Yeah. 400, something yeah. like that, yeah. Around yeah, 200, you know, yeah. Whatever, I, I don't know. Uh, Yudan Nasi. Yes, yes. Okay, so now... It's later, he was the end of, the, right, the end of that period. Yes, he was the one who offered it at the end, put it together. Okay, so so this is not a history class. We're not cutting it to the... the, the, the again, the question based on the table is, as rabbis, as physicians, do we have to accept the medicine in the Talmud or, the, or other sciences, um, which is really one and the same, any science in the Talmud as Torah, or is that just the science of their days and they might have gotten it wrong and probably did get it wrong? So that's the question. So we, so we started again with the verses originally. We mentioned... So we're not discussing do we have to accept the science of the United States government as Torah. No. no, that's not a question. No, you mean that, <laughs> that there's no climate change? No, no, no. Um, so, uh, so um, where are we? Okay, so we're in here. Does everyone have one of these? Okay, so we we are. I don't. I think we just did um, source two last week. We read that, and then we read the Rambam, which is on the back, which is source. 11. So we're really up to so three. So there's going to be, as all things in uh, in this class, there are going to be, as we're going to see, numerous opinions about this question, num- numerous ways to view uh, the conflict between science and Torah. So number one, I just quoted, this is a contemporary um, rabbi who actually lives in Israel. Um, he is discussing here, actually totally unrelated topic, but interestingly enough, he's discussing Tchelet, which as we know, Tchelet is the um, 
number three on the sheet here. Three. Okay. So, so uh, is, uh, as we know, a biblical obligation to wear tzitzit. It's not actually a biblical obligation to wear tzitzit. When you're wearing four-cornered garment, the Torah says you have to put the fringes on it. And the Torah says there are white strings and blue strings. Today, and this has been lost almost from the times of the Talmud already, the blue dye that was used, it's not um, where they got the, what the source of that dye was and exactly what color was, was lost somehow throughout history. So it's not clear what it was. In the last century or so, there's been a, rejuvena- a rejuvenation of scientists and archaeologists and different Hasidic rabbis. It started in the, even in the 20s already trying to find the original source of Tchelet. Different opinions, we're not getting into that. Um, actually, yeah, that's right, exactly. What was it? Was it a snail? Was it a fish? Was it a sea monster? We don't know. So, but there are different opinions. Arche- archaeologists have found, and there's a reju, re- I don't know what the word is, but a lot of people started wearing it based on different opinions. Um, started wearing Tchelet again, um, especially in Israel. Um, and the, a lot of it is based on actual archaeology where they found off the coast of Ashdod and a few other places actual under the sea thousands of these shells and factories literally they yeah. dug up um, where they processed this dye from a specific um, snail that has that has the comes out green but it turns blue in the sun the, the dye there's actually I went to there's a f- I visited the factory current factory in Israel where they explain how it's worked, I have no idea, I didn't understand most of it. Um, but uh, the point it's is... It's very pretty blue. Yes. Uh, the, the bottom line is, so the question is based on archaeology, one of the questions that was posed, because many people don't accept it and are not wearing trelet again, even though there seems to be some scientific proof. So can you use, is that sufficient to prove that this was trelet? The fact that archaeologists found um, found these factories, which were clear they were, it was being produced on mass, and they claim that's part of the proof. So this rabbi is addressing this, and he says, he's in general addressing the scientific method, and he says, scientific method is not a Torah proof. Meaning, because part of the issue today, as you know, is we have a chair for you, right? Chair, if you want to give me a chair, we have a chair for you. Sit here. Yeah. We got to use prime <coughs> chair, the best chair in the house. No, he doesn't sit. Oh, anyway. standing today. And you have your banana. Um, so, uh, so any in any case, I'll just read you what he says. This is a quote um, translated from the Hebrew. He says, "I know that this mode of thinking has been accepted in various scientific fields." Because another issue, obviously, is that the assumption is a scientific method. I don't know. Someone could Google it and find out when it was invented, a year. But clearly, it was not around in the times of the Talmud. So some make the argument. Even when they experimented in the Talmud, and you do find many experiments, the scientific, they, they didn't use the scientific method, of course, that we have today. That's the accepted method. So is, is some would say, that then it's not true evidence. True evidence can only be based on um, contemporary scientific method. Okay? Um, which is interesting, actually, in this book, just to bring up this book again, he actually discusses how the Talmud, if anything, was the first scientific method, because the concept of... of uh, of actually viewing things and then doing experiments, he says one of the first places we find it is in the Talmud when it comes to ascertaining facts. Um, so they're saying see, Aristotle is the uh, say, recognized the inventor of the scientific method, and he lived between 384 BCE and 322. Actually, even before him, contemporaneously with him, Hippocrates is considered the father of medicine specifically because he separated religion and science, as it were. 
No, but that's some, we're not talking about separating religion and science. No, the question is, what type of method do we use to prove scientific fact? But he also developed a, a method uh, for uh, establishing okay. what's actually scientific fact in medicine. Okay. So that's around 400-something. So anyway, so he says here, thank you for that, Ron. Number three, he says, um, I know that the mode of thinking has been accepted in various scientific fields. The hypothesis, which is most logical and acceptable to the heart, is the accepted conclusion. But this is not the thought process of halacha, and it is not its language. Hypothesis is not at all proof. Opposite every hypothesis, one could bring other hypotheses. And even if our imagination could produce no hypotheses, these hypotheses still have no meaning in the halachic calculus and the path of Torah. He says the Torah spells out very clearly how we come to conclusions in halacha. We have principles. Um, we, we have the concept of the majority opinion. We have the concept of testimony, as we know, in a Jewish court of law. Um, uh, circumstantial evidence is never accepted for anything, unless it's a monetary case, but I'm saying in any capital cases or, or uh, um, in almost all criminal cases in Jewish law, circumstantial evidence is not acceptable evidence. Um, so clearly we, the, the halacha says very clearly, it has, we have principles that cause our conclusions, and hypotheses alone would not be any evidence. So just in like in this case, once there's two options, he's saying, in any conclusion, in any hypothesis, hypotheses like this, and then you always have the opposite hypotheses. He says Allah doesn't recognize that. Well, so no, it's for example, let me let me finish my point. Example in this case with the Tchelas, he's saying, yes, very nice. Archaeologists found thousands of factories which seem to prove that this existed just at, in the right time, in the right era. Um, but he says, but there could be other explanations. Once you have any aspect of another explanation, then halacha does not accept that as any valid. What are proof. the other explanations? You have to read the, his book. I don't know. I didn't read it. Like I said, I don't understand. Those the thirteen principles that are articulated every morning in Shachrit, how you look at the Talmud. No, oh, well, that's that's the principle. We'll talk about that too. That's the principles of of uh, deduction, of uh, extrapolation. How do we derive things from the verses? Is that what he's talking about? No, uh, yeah. no. He's talking about in general, even logical conclusions or or are not based on hypotheses. Torah needs facts. And we have a principle how we, uh, our system has a principle how to get to you're, those facts. You're sort of describing so now what he's saying is, proof. Yes, it's exactly. defining what is the burden of so proof. So he's saying, and it's contemporary science many times is based on hypotheses. And he says there, that is not an accepted burden of proof in halach. That's what he's mentioning. Just an interesting side point. We got to focus, we got to I was pointing out that yeah. in contemporary scientific world, Eyewitness testimony has been demonstrated over and over again through pretty unreliable. That could be true. I mean, but the again, the Taurus is very clearly. Yeah. Um, but as we know, and that's there's a whole uh, um, industry in Texas, and actually David Dale, and that circumstantial evidence is, is also very. Yeah. You know, people are getting killed right. on death row based on circumstantial evidence, not on the Taurus burden of proof, and there's a lot of mistakes. So. Killing a lot of innocent people, according you to David Dowell. And eyewitness testimony is also unreliable. That could be too. That's why the Torah requires it's true. That's why the Torah requires two. even and confessions are unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the Torah won't accept confessions either, by the way. Self-confession to a sin is not accepted in a court, in Jewish court of law. So that's a very good point, which today, you're right, the, the psychologists say, well, every time there's a serial killer, there's like 15 people confessing. To yeah. <laughs> they all want the, to be in the paper. So, but that's that's also Talmudic law, which is halacha uh, that self-confession on any sin is not acceptable. Um, so I'm not sure what he's saying here. Because he's, he's just saying that halacha requires, in his eyes at least, a different type of burden of proof <coughs> than the current scientific community, and therefore. 
just because, you know, in this case, he's referring to archaeology, which is a science, not, maybe yeah. not medical. So, so he's saying that itself is not sufficient proof that halachically we now require everyone to wear the blue dye on the city. That's basically it's fascinating to me why it doesn't rise to that level. So, so he's That's saying because question. we have our principles of, as to what is considered, you know, conclusionary proof. And this hypothesis, the scientific method doesn't necessarily fit that I guess halachic my, criteria. My question would be, why not? Well, you have to know the halachic criteria. So that's what I'm saying. You have to, you have to read this. No, it's is just, just, it's just interesting. Like, if you find factories that are making what appears to be something from snails over thousands of years the ago. The to be part, that's the problem. Right, right, right. But you have, like, all this information, and yet if you um, adhere to a science, archaeology, that says that this was a factory that made this thing, it was dated at this time, it was done for thousands of people, it was done over generations and generations. Like, yeah, so he's saying, but argument. it's still only hypotheses. It's not. It's not a conclusionary proof. Once yeah. there's another option, maybe they were using it to make uh, um, uh, lingerie, Brazil. I don't know what they could be using for. Uh, there's other things that blue dye could be used for, not only TT. Until you find right. the cellie that had the fringe in the factory. Yeah. Even though. Yeah. Even that, I'm not sure. Even that, I'm not sure it'll work. Yeah. What? Even that, I'm not sure it'll work. Now I'm saying I'm because sure. again maybe the guy was late for shachris and he died in the fact it doesn't prove that. <laughs> and if you can, that's a different question. If you can take the tzitzit and and then figure out what that dye was, the original, but even that by the way, what, I'm saying is let's say you find an old pair of tzitzit mm -hmm. that had tchelat and you take it to a lab and you figure out what the dye was, yeah. maybe that would work. But I'll tell you, for example, it has been done. There's a big argument. Has second. Been done. Now listen, there's a big, there's a, as we know, some of us might know, there's there's two types of tefillin people wear. I mean, is there a, there's only, we rule like Rashi, Rashi's opinion, which is, it has to do with the order of the parshiot and the tefillin, the shell roche. There's four parchments in, the, in your shell roche, in the head tefillin, and the question is what the order is. So there's an argu big argument in the Rishonim, there's at least probably uh, 16 opinions. Um, so if you really want to be from, you could put on 16 different pairs of fill and you still haven't fulfilled all the opinions. But we we do halachically, we wear Rashi's tefillin, most of us. There are certain people who want to be machmir, they want to be strict, so they also put on Rabbeinu Tam's opinion, who was a grandson of Rashi, who disagreed with Rashi as to the order. So they found on on King Hezekiah's caver, the old, in the old days, they would, there's something called Geniza, which they would take... Uh, Anything that got ruined, any like a Sefer Torah scroll that gets damaged, you bury it. Okay, you're supposed to bury it. You're not supposed to just throw it out. So they found on the on the grave next to the grave of King Hezekiah from his time, from his burial, they found a Geniza there, and they dug it up, and there was tefillin there. This was pre the obviously way before even the Talmud, right? This predated the Talmud, and the tefillin were like Rabbeinu Tam, not like Rashi's opinion. So everyone said, oh, you see, Rabbeinu Tam is correct. It's filling. So the other people said, no, it's not a proof. That's why they buried it, because it was the wrong order. It was the wrong pair. Yeah, That's yeah. why it was buried. So you can know, nothing <laughs> can ever get a foolproof uh, right. opinion. After, after <coughs> laying fill in, in certain, in certain, right, certain people will do that. Right, they put on prayer afterwards. Yeah, they put on another pair. Yeah, yes, yeah, many people do that. I do. I do that actually. Right. I do it. So could you summarize this by saying the halachic method is different than the scientific yes, method? Yes, that's what he's say. He's proposing. By the way, not everyone agrees with him. There are people who say archaeology is a proof to Torah, and they bring proofs from the Talmud, where the Talmud used archaeology as a proof to halacha. 
So, in, so, that, so this is... There's another way of thinking this, that the view from the top of Mount Sinai is different than the view from the top of Mount Olympus. I mean, that's that's for sure. Um, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. This, that's the essence of it. In medicine, that's certainly true. The scientific method in medicine is relatively new. Yeah, so that's and for sure. We're going to talk about the differences between science. Hell yeah, it's wrong a lot. We, we know that. But we should believe our doctors anyway, right? <laughs> right. Not after sitting no, in the Okay, so now um, I just want to propose, before we get to the good stuff, I want to propose something else, which is a fascinating concept. So, so, so again, he, in this first quote here, he seems to be concerned with the scientific method, as you're saying, doesn't fit with the criteria of the halachic method. And therefore, since they're using a different method for their conclusions, their conclu- halacha would not necessarily accept their conclusions. Okay, that's, that's what he's proposing. Another issue, fascinating thing, which I found, this is really uh, just a social issue, which is, as you know, I'm just throwing this out there, I don't know enough about it in history, but as you know, the Catholic Church is very, was very opposed to science. Throughout, throughout their history, you know, especially in the beginning, they were one of the key fighters um, against. Uh, they, they were very intimidated by science and Galileo. disproving religion. What? Galileo, Galileo, and many, and many others throughout history, throughout and many of the popes. So science was something that was almost banned in Catholic countries, um, in, in in Christian countries. So there was a. I read this fascinating thing once, and I quote it here which is that even, so when, as Jews, as we know, we always have a complex. We live amongst, we live in Galut, and we always are concerned about the Goyim, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, most times just for survival reasons, because we have to be concerned how they view us, how they view the Jewish community, and to make sure we're safe in those countries. So it seems like, for example, there was a famous um, sci- Jewish scientist named Spinoza, who's a philosopher slash scientist, and he um, in Spain. Lens maker. The lens maker. I don't know what he did. So, Baruch Spinoza, famous guy, and he was actually banned in Spain by the Jewish community, put him in Kherim and ostracized him. So, there's uh, social. Uh, the, the, this, these professors here wrote a paper <coughs> explaining that the reason why he was banned is not because. Judaism had a problem with his science that he was espousing. It was because at the time the Catholic Church in Spain was was so against science, the Jewish community felt that they have to remove him from the Jewish community because if he's viewed as part of the Jewish community, they would it would affect their standing within the country. But it had nothing to do with Judaism being Judaism's view is that we we are okay with science. We have no problem with science. As a matter of fact, we use science in Torah and in Halacha. We need science. Um, but because of our social settings, we had to sometimes take a view that might not have been the Jewish view, but we had to show the Catholics we're with them. Interestingly enough, even today that happens sometimes. Sometimes you'll have um, Jewish organizations on both sides, on the left and the right, um, are taking certain views only because they want to be part of the... Like what? What's your example? Today? In contemporary times? So contemporary times, I can tell you, let's say uh, there, there might be Orthodox organizations, umbrella organizations, that are involved in legislation where they'll get together with evangelicals, and sometimes even though the evangelical views might not be uh, consistent with Torah views, let's say take abortion for example, would be a good example of that, where, (coughs) as we know, uh, Catholic views are much stricter than Jewish views, but many times you'll have Jewish organizations 
working together with Catholic organizations um, for certain legislation, even though that legislation might have some things that are not, that don't coincide with Torah, because they feel like we have to, you know, if we work for you, we'll be in the same boat. We don't have enough power sometimes, and we need them to work together. And therefore, we'll go ahead and work together with them, um, even at maybe at the expense of passing legislation that might not coincide with Torah views. But, but just it's because we need stricter them stricter than Torah yes, views, yes. so that's why it's okay. Um, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's okay or it's not okay. I'm saying it's it's a survivalist. It's not associated um, so it's not like you're adding. No, I'm saying we're not. Events. It's the it's the U.S. government that's doing it, so we're not doing. I mean, it's not something. So why don't we just espouse our own views? I'm, I'm, I'm explaining to you because as as Jew, as the Jewish community and historically and even in this great country of America. You need to work with your neighbors many times for your own things. So therefore, I'll work with you on your law um, and help you pass this legislation, and we'll lobby the government together as a group. So then, when we need you for the next time, we'll, you'll be able. They'll be. We'll be on the same page, and you'll be able to help. So this has happened throughout history, and I think so. Sometimes people try to bring a view from throughout history that Jews were anti-science, and what they're espousing, what they're saying here in this paper, is no, it's not true. Jews were never anti-science. We just many times had to show our neighborly Catholic friends or government that we were because otherwise we would, the Jewish community would be ostracized socially uh, and even the safety of, of the community. It's, it seems closer, virtue signaling seems closer to that issue than uh, getting together to, to push for legislation that we both agree with but Yours isn't written exactly the way I would like to write it, but but oh, it's close enough so we'll we'll yes. get together as allies. I think that's a little different than virtue signaling, where you say something you don't believe in. Yes, hundred percent. Hundred percent. I'm just I'm just applying it to modern times. I agree with you. Yes, clearly it's not the same. By the way, it's on the left also. I mean, the ADL many times, as I mentioned last time, they'll fight for things that are clearly not the Jewish position, but. I mean, that could be other reasons also, as, 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 as I mentioned before, taking the ADL was sent a delegation to um, Texas State Legislature and to testify that creationism, uh, what are artificial, what's it called, intelligent design, is not, is to, not to be taught in Texas uh, um, textbooks, even though it clearly is not the Jewish view, right? We believe in, in the Torah says very clearly, if you're Jewish, you believe in creationism. But they did not want that taught. So you have it on, on both sides. I mean, they aligned with the left in that issue because I think they felt like they have to be aligned with the left in order for them to work with them. In other cases, that's what it seemed to me. What these professors are saying, Kasher and Biederman, is that the politicization of science is okay if there's some reason to do it. They didn't say, they're not saying it's okay. They're stating their hypothesis of why it was done, why Spinoza was banned by the Jewish community. And right, that the Jewish community, community of that time was yes. yes, he was excommunicated okay. by the Jewish community at that time, if not because they disagreed reasons. with his positions, yeah. necessarily, but they felt like for the safety and their their being able to live within the greater community of Spain. Which is different than saying you science Spain. is not true. It wasn't Spain. It was Holland. Holland? Was he did. Six, by the time you're talking about 1639, mm. ain't any Jews left in Spain. That's true. Okay. So, uh, yes, that's a good point. I don't no, know. They're, they're not saying that science is not true. Saying yes, oh, exactly. So that's my point. My point is that there's a whole that's other the position which 
really makes this whole question moot. <coughs> that you can't bring proofs from necessarily from you know all these cases in history because it was a social issue, it was not a halachic decision. That was, that's the point. I mean, the rabbis at the time, for no, they weren't making the leaders of the community weren't making halachic decisions. That's what he's saying is wrong. They weren't stating anything about the Jewish view. It was just a social issue. But isn't this like a monster loophole to always explain previous decisions and say, well, actually, that really wasn't the Jewish view, even though that's what they published, they wrote, they talked. They only said it because of the surrounding community, and they needed to yes. make it appear a certain way. It could but really be. That's yeah. not what they believe. That's not kind of like Colonel Kind of like Colonel like Nidre. Like Nidre. You know yeah. Marks said, who are you going to believe, me or your eyes? <laughs> so, so you're right, and I agree 100%. It's, it's, it's but they it's always revisionist history. Yeah. It's called revisionist history, but <laughs> it might be right. I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing, I'm trying to give the. So basically, everything we read should be not taken. Well, this, seriously. again, this, no, because there's a halachic, for example, you'll have. A, a perfect example, by the way, would be, uh, and we discussed this in the past, Ramosha Feinstein, when we discussed marijuana, legalizing marijuana. Ramosha Feinstein has a lengthy response of prohibiting marijuana use in the, from the 70s. Okay. Right. Most of the halacha proofs there are pretty shaky. But socially, I think he had to say what he said. He was written, it was to Shiva guys wrote him, some Shiva guys wrote him a question, can we smoke marijuana in the 70s? So he had to respond that it was prohibited. And he had to find some halachic basis to, to base it on. But, now but not necessarily, no. What I'm saying is, but it's not that really necessarily, um, again, this is my hypothesis, that it really was halachically prohibited. It just socially, he couldn't have, he couldn't write a letter permitting yeshiva guys to smoke weed and all the yeshiva. <laughs> right? It was just a social issue. So I'm saying you have, that so concept does exist process? in halacha, the meaning process? the concept does exist in halacha. And in general, by the way, it's an interesting concept also. We have, um, even morally, meaning there are some laws, for example, the, the classical example would be um, polygamy. Polygamy is permitted according to the Torah, 100% permitted. It only became prohibited when socially it was. It became not the norm. Okay, in Germany, in the in the 1200s, Germany outlawed polygamy. So the Jewish community at the time, the rabbis felt, since socially this is viewed as immoral, right? Right. Socially, this is viewed as a as as a it would it's immoral at this point. So therefore, we we have to take on the morals, the the strict morals of the society in order that it shouldn't look at Judaism is less moral than society at large. One second, let me finish this very important point. So, halakhically, there's nothing wrong with it. And therefore, in the Sephardic communities, it was never outlawed. It's still permitted, technically. If you're from Morocco, you can have six wives. Okay? Don't try it at home. Um, so, right, so the point is, you see many times, halakha will give out a ruling, many times based on the social, uh, on a, for, for social reasons, as opposed to a strict halakhic ruling. But they prohibit it, it, that happens. We have to adhere to society, so to speak. Not only going up, as you mentioned, not going down. We can't say just because society at large is permitting homosexuality, not going there. But so therefore, we're gonna, like we're gonna, we're now gonna say, okay, it's also permitted. Where do you draw of the course line? Because there? no, if the Torah says something. No, so it's a very easy line. If the Torah says something is prohibited, then it's the, we can't permit it. If the Torah permits something, we can go ahead and make and be stricter, and say it's to, it's prohibited. But we can't permit something the Torah prohibited. That's the difference. A very easy line, very easy demarcation. Yeah. This is extraordinarily. But common. the point is that I'm just proving you that social, sometimes social issues will affect the halachic ruling, such like as they marijuana. All do. It sounds oh. like they all do. No, not they all. But no, it's just a matter time. of time, and then eventually no. it will. As you see, most of them are sourced, and they have valid sources. But w but science could be what I'm proposing. Maybe s the issue 
of how we view science might be affected by, by if you think society. If you think about any organization that's trying to establish how it will behave, like medical professionalism or halakhic system, there's generally three factors. One is the actual science of it, as it were. <coughs> Second is the politics. And the third is the cultural aspect. The, the polit political might actually be considered illegal. In other words, you might, you, you might, we're sort of getting far afield from whether the science is true or not. We're just saying that the science may be what it is, but politics and the culture may affect it. Like when, you know, Moshe Fine said again with smoking, saying, well, yeah, everybody does it, so I'm not ready to say we're going to outlaw that, because culturally it's not acceptable at this moment to outlaw smoking. That doesn't change the science of whether smoking causes lung cancer. It does. I mean, this is we but, do this all the time in medicine, all the time. Politics and culture affect. But but I think that how we yeah, how we act on the science. Where, where I'm struggling though, and maybe this is Ron's as well. If if we have this great overlay of science and current culture on halakha, are there any moral absolutes left? Right, so that, that's, that's, that's the question, meaning that's, I think, why Ron is shocked there, because I'm saying there are not necessarily if, absolutes. if there's no moral so, absolutes, yes, I want to make it clear again. Uh, I want to make it clear again. There's, of course, the Torah, what's, what it says in the Torah is 100% morally absolute. That's our moral guideline, without question, either way. Yeah, but we have but to we understand that the rabbis understood, meaning a later point, and that's what we say. It's not necessarily Torah, meaning post Torah, post Bible. One second, one second. Post Bible is that uh, is is we understand that sometimes there are cultural norms, and we might need to, in order to survive, even as we're saying, let's say Spinoza in Holland, as Nader pointed out, or or marijuana in the 70s. So we can't permit certain things, even though according to the Torah, it might be permitted. So it's absolutely moral as far as the Torah is concerned, but society views it as immoral, and therefore we might have to give ourselves an extra stringency. So the, of course there's absolute morals. What yeah. you're basically saying is, what you mentioned earlier, but uh, what you're saying there's Torah, written law, mm -hmm. and there's oral law, but oral law we just need to forget. No, right so on, one right second. On. So I didn't get to that point. So I, I want to make it clear. Well, yeah. If I <laughs> Once I'll address your point in a second. If I understand what, where we go with this, if the Torah says you cannot, you cannot, period, end yes. of discussion. If the Torah says you may, then we're allowed to work yeah. with that latitude? To restrict to, be, yeah. to, to restrict what the Torah yes. Yeah. That's the only thing we're allowed to do. We're that's, not allowed to permit that's something. That's true. What that's about the true. example of ear piercing? The Torah says you're not allowed to mutilate the body or pierce anything, except we learned in tradition. No, Torah doesn't say anything about ear piercing. You can't have to piercing. No, Torah doesn't say that anyway. Torah just says, says you shouldn't mutilate your body. Tattoos. But they understood that piercing was included, but they went out and they saw in the surrounding culture everyone was doing it, and therefore it became okay. 
So I'm not sure. I understand. I'm not sure. I, agree with, I don't know. Yes, could times. be. Rivka had a dozen. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm saying you might remember more. Rivka had a Yes, yeah. I'm saying the Torah doesn't prohibit anywhere explicitly piercings. The Torah says don't mutilate your body. Now we have to interpret what a mutilation means. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's different. But, that's but the clearly they different. went out and saw in the cultures that everybody was doing. Yes. And it so became therefore accepted. It, and so therefore, it's not considered mutilation. Right. right. They excluded right. that from the definition. Yes. Okay. Right. So that's different. That's that's. That's reinterpreting, exactly. right? Yeah. That's reinterpreting or interpreting the verse. This That's is different. a huge loophole. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Is, uh, in response to Ed's question, well, something Ron lacks. I thought Moral Feinstein did ban smoking. No, once the evidence came he out, he said you shouldn't smoke. He, no, but he no. didn't prohibit Allah. No, we didn't. We discussed it at It took him many, even if by the time he said even it's prohibited, it's many years after the Surgeon General's report. He never officially prohibited blank, you know, gave a blank oh, statement. Yeah. Now all the rabbis prohibit it, much later. No, uh, no, no, he did not. We, we discussed it there. Now, I'll show you the, the response. <coughs> but just to address his question, well, remind me again what it was. I started. About oral Torah. Because oh, no, so I'm telling that's a good right, point. Because yes. The, uh, because you can say that, but the, a lot of people say, well, our response is the correct response. And you're saying no. Well, so it's a good point. So let me explain. Let me address it. What I'm not saying all oral Torah. Again, we're and that was the question we started with. Is let's go back to science. Let's say the medicine in the oral Torah is that medicine or is it Torah? That's the question. How do we view that? Or other scientific statements, as we're going to discuss soon, within the Talmud, within the oral Torah, do we view that as Torah and therefore we have to accept it across the board, blanket acceptance? Or because if it's Torah, then it was given at Sinai. Or do we view it as based on the science of their times and therefore it could change. So what I'm saying is, of course oral Torah is, um, is, has to be accepted blankly. I'm saying is post-Talmud and, and things that are decided in a social setting, does that have, but, but what the Talmud decided on, except it was medicine, that's the question which is still open on the table, medicine and other sciences, is that Torah or not? But whatever is Torah, meaning if it's not based on science, or then, then of course it, it's accepted as your old Torah. No question. You know, I happen to agree with all that, but in uh, you get two Jews, you have three opinions. Responsa, in this class, it's four opinions. Okay. <laughs> Responsa by different Jewish organizations. One Jewish organization is not going to accept that responsa, and another will. Right, so mm -hmm. we can argue within the oral Torah, like we said, so we mentioned before, Manny said there's many arguments right. in the Talmud, but they're arguing about what was given at Sinai. They're not arguing, they're not saying my own opinion because I uh, like uh, fish and therefore I'm going to permit this, uh, you know, crab. That's not the way, meaning it's not their own opinion. They're argue, they might argue about the interpretation of the Torah. You can't reject the Torah. Right, exactly. But so they, within a box, they, they can, they can have different opinions. To that, and you, their, inter their response is different from another group's response. Yes, 100%. And, you, and you, then somebody has to accept that. And you're, yeah, so that's the question. How do, when you have two opinions or three opinions, how do you decide? So we have principles for that too, of how you make a decision, a final decision. But there, there's just like in any justice system, you'll have different courts. And then the question is, how does it come to a final decision? But you're right. Of course there can be uh, different opinions. No question. To get to Ed's question about are there any moral absolutes, I, the one that comes to mind is uh, physician-assisted suicide, that you cannot kill a patient, no matter what. Is that, is that from Torah, directly? That's not an absolute. 
Well, that I was talking about in Judaism. In Judaism, yeah, but as we discussed, there might be exceptions. So <laughs> every 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 morally absolute, every moral absolute. So might have some, if you get that, are there any moral absolutes? Yes, it's a, it's morally absolute. You cannot kill someone without question. Question is what's called killing, and his well, brain dead death, his, his cardiac station of cardiac function, because he's in the brain. That's where the science and so the lock are right. Come so that's exactly. sometimes science will come in and rub right. against each other. Exactly. Right. It, it, it's more absolute that you can't commit murder. The question is What's how murder? do you define murder? Right, exactly. So, mm -hmm. so, but I mean, this current status events—if they're not brain dead and you kill them—it is murder, unless they're in the process of dying. And if they're terminally ill, we're going to discuss that. So, actually, we're going to get that. <laughs> we're getting to that. So, uh, right, but just yes. to go back to Feinstein, I, I'm sorry. You, uh, what is your name again? I'm sorry. Gordon Sick. Of course, Sick. I apologize. I apologize. Um, as Gordon was saying, the exact point about it took years, decades, for Moshe Feinstein to finally, or it wasn't even Feinstein, to acknowledge that smoking was not okay. Mm -hmm. But he was presented decades worth of facts, and he rejected it, and he rejected it, and he rejected it, and we had people coming to him no. telling him all the facts, and he rejected science, all of them. Science, politics, we, and Until... Someone else decided it's illegal. When I first started coming to these sessions, <laughs> yeah. you had a black smoking beard. was still, I had a black still beard legal. then, and <laughs> smoking was still halakhically legal. Yeah, it right. changed. So that's it. So that's a, that's exactly what that's we're discussing what here. When Torah is based on that science, and that would be a perfect example, um, Torah in that case, the halakhic issue, the decision is based on the medicine. When does it change? So, even by the way, well, the, when you have a lachic decision, this is very important. And Steinberg explained this to me numerous occasions in his interaction with halachic decisors. In the Torahs, the, the, the halachic decisors are going to be 10 years behind the science. It's not like, okay, a study comes out today, and now all of a sudden we're going to pass it based on that study. So, but it takes it time. It wasn't one study, it was yeah. like dozens of studies. Yeah, not dozens, but I'm saying it takes yeah. time for, for halakha to catch up with the science. And we've also Even if we go the, the rabbis science. don't go out and get the information either. They well, wait for people to. Well, Feinstein did. He, he, he did. No, I'm saying the doctors would come to him explain whenever he dealt with and brain And he rejected them. all of them. Uh, yes, so that's exactly the question on the table. They're they're gonna gonna the science you're going, that's, that's a different question. We're discussing here. Do we even listen to science even relevant? It that's question be. number two. Okay, so, so that's, why don't they even? No, I'm saying if the Torah says something, uh, if obviously the halacha is based on the science, of course, you need to view the science. But as we're going to see, let's say halacha said X science, and the science says something else. We have a contradiction. Is really what we're addressing. Okay. There wasn't a contradiction when Moshe Feinstein was presented the information. But, but I would toss sure, out because that that's initially, as we know, whenever you have a study comes out, there's always five study. studies that come no, out. No, it was dozens of right. studies. I know, but for thousands of years, they believed smoking was healthy and it was beneficial to your health. Okay. So now it doesn't change on the dime. But even how if the study ha, comes out, you need to take Khan never said that you should smoke. No. The question was. <laughs> Life magazine said. The, the, the question, right? The, the advertisements ads. would say so, it's beneficial. So the question, the question is, if if it isn't banned, should you be superimposed then the scientific uh, decision onto your decision? Now, had Halakha said you must smoke three times a day while you're praying, and then the science changed, that would be a halachic change. But I'm not so sure that. 
how a ha should even be changing with the science. Well, that's the question on the table. That's exactly the question. It's a very excellent question. That's what we're trying to figure out. What happens? You have halacha, seemingly well, based uh, on science, and then the science changed yeah, 500 years later. So do we change the halacha? I, 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 I understand the, that do. concept, but, but you know, we, we keep the, the science changes. I mean, one day there's a consensus on on man-made global warming, the next day there isn't. Uh, the hockey stick's been changed. So science changes all the time. Do, do moral absolutes change with the science all the time? That's right. to me what this whole That's issue is. That's the question. Is. Is. That's the question on the table. Well, I was a physician assisted death for patients. I want to be dead. Is that sufficient to change a lock up? Yeah, I mean, the, th that's a, a cultural change in the right. rules of autonomy. It's defining death. I'm dead because I want to be dead. Or I'm, mm -hmm. or I'm, I'm damn near dead, so let's just finish it off. Mm -hmm. Or when Orthodox acknowledge homosexuality as a genetic, scientifically yeah. proven well, fact. That's, that's more of a theological question than halakha, but it's you're halakha. right. No, 100%, but we're not going there today. I least, can't wait yes. to go there. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward okay. to it. Um, so, so I want to present. I want to. So first, I want to present because we don't have so much time left. We're going to have to continue this till after Sukkot. Um, the the the. So one of the classical examples I happen to be studying now. That's actually how I got to this topic, um, and I figured it'd be a good topic. Is the, there's there's a few blatantly clear contradictions in Talmud to contemporary science. Um, which seems very clear that they got the science wrong. And the question, that's where, where it's discussed many times. So the, f the first one that I'm having to be studying now is there's a whole tract called Chulin, which deals with all animal, uh, the kashras of animals, etc., and all the signs from the Torah. And one of the things, one of the prohibitions in the Torah, very clear prohibition, is the, the, it's in two places in the Torah, Parshas Mishpatim and Parshas Re'eh, I believe. It says, Basar... Basada trefa lotachel. You shall not eat a trefa animal. Now we learn the word treif, we use, people use it in Yiddish as just not kosher, but that's a wrong translation. The word trefa in the Torah, when it's referring to trefa, is referring to a kosher species of animal. I think we mentioned this last week. Um, but um, let's say roadkill would be a classical example. You know, it's a deer. A deer is a kosher animal. Um, but once it, once it was hit by uh, F 250, um, it's no longer kosher. Not only because, you know, even if you shecht it before it dies, let's say it's, um, it's still alive, and I come ahead, I take out my knife, and I shecht the animal. Kosher slaughter. So it didn't die from, because obviously if it wasn't slaughtered, it's not kosher. So it's a kosher species, you slaughtered it properly, you salted it, you did everything you have to do. It's still not kosher because the, the Torah calls it a tray for once. The assumption is it was hit by a F-150 or even, for sure, a 250, is, is it has internal injuries, and it's going to die. Okay, now once an animal is terminally ill, it's going to die within the next 12 months, whether it has cancer, whatever it has, it's automatically disqualified from being eaten as a kosher animal. Even if it's a kosher species and everything was done properly, that's called a trefa. Trefa means, the word trefa literally means torn apart. So any type of defect in the animal, which is a terminal illness, um, is a trefa. You cannot eat it. That's why maybe this is where the myth comes from that kosher is healthier. In this case, it actually is true in this particular law where you, you know, only one, today I can tell you, in America, only one out of four animals that are slaughtered are, are actually, are not, do not, are not considered trafe. 
interestingly enough. So most of the meat being consumed are animals that have some type of illness where halacha would say it's terminal and you cannot uh, and you can't eat that animal. Okay, we only eat those one out of one of the four one of those four. Again, that's glat kosher. That's a stricter version, but in either case, the point is: so, how do we know what's considered? No, in America, actually, South America, they're more, they're more healthier animals than America. It's only in Houston; it's worse. You can't find any, any glat. Seriously, speak. Anything there? You know, out of Fort Worth, I have heard, and I'm probably wrong, and it's got it's a hypothesis, as you're saying, that the the animals that are shechted kosher are much uh, less healthy looking or whatever you want than mm-hmm. the ones that are uh, that are put into the ones for trade in the area for trade. Is that wrong? I don't understand what you're saying. The, Say it again. The animals are the less animals healthy. Animals that that land up being uh, shechted kosher are less healthy. Are less healthy looking. No. I have heard. heard that on the contrary, I've you can't. If you see halachically, if you see an animal that's staggering or. Or there's something wrong with it, even externally, you can't check. And they say that the meat from the the, the treif animals tastes better because they've got better animals that are comfortable. I've heard that. I don't yeah, believe what, what you've heard. What he's saying is that there's a conspiracy oh, in the stockyards. And it, it, it may yeah. be true. Uh, yeah. There's a conspiracy <laughs> in the stockyards. I think that's the reason. This, this cow doesn't look so good. Put them in the but it, it would be it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'll tell yeah. you why it doesn't make sense because on the contrary, if it doesn't look good, then there's a good chance there's something wrong with it, and it's going to be rejected as kosher. So they're losing money. To, but okay, if they would do that, they'd be losing I, uh, more money because the, they get the a lot more money for the, the kosher animal than for a non-kosher. The way they feed them in the feedlot, they come they come out fat and healthy looking. Anyway, I don't know where you got that. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has heard that. I I never heard it, and I'm in the kosher business. Whatever it is, okay. Right, so the, sure. the point is that that I want to get to the point here before we run out of time. The point is so the Gemara. How do we define terminal illness? So the Gemara, the Mishnah in Chulin, and there's a whole paragraph called Elu Trevus, which is, discusses this topic of what's considered treif, what type of defects in animals are considered treif when we see them when they're alive. For example, there's so there's the Mishnah lists eighteen. Actually, eight, eight. I don't remember. Eight categories, I believe, of trafe. Eight categories of terminal illnesses, and within those, it comes out. The list comes out to something like, uh, I think, at the end of the day, eighteen or twenty-six. I don't remember. Of term, these illnesses are defined as trafe. That means if you see an animal, let's say, for example, one of them, one category is what's called a drusa. If uh, if it was attacked by another animal, so let's say a wolf attacks yeah, the, your cow in the stockyard, even if the cow seems fine living, it's six months later, you still cannot eat that cow once it was attacked by another animal. The assumption is it was attacked by certain types of animals, it's going to have some internal injuries and therefore there's some type of what puncture. What the actual age of the animal? Well, as long as it's walking around, it's healthy. If the animal doesn't walk, then that's a problem. Okay, so, so there are many, again, puncture, any type, any organ that's punctured automatically makes a trafe, which by the way, that's why there's a big problem today, even because they inoculate cows and chickens. Sorry and they give them all these hormones and they put needles in them and the needles many times will puncture the stomach or the something like that and that automatically makes a trip. So there's, there's a problem um, that they had to solve. Many companies will not inoculate their animals. Jewish, the kosher companies, or they'll do a different type of inoculation because the needle can halachically render a trip. We're not going there. The point is, if you look at that list of trefas, many of them have changed. Meaning, in contemporary times, Contemporary veterinary, med- med- veterinary 
medicine will tell you this that the Mishnah lists as a terminal illness 2,000 years ago is no longer terminal. We have surgery, we can solve the problem. For example, like we're saying, a puncture in the stomach automatically makes the animal trefa, any type of puncture in the stomach. Today, we can do surgery on the stomach and, and, it's still, and the animal lives a healthy life. Okay, so surgery clearly, the, in, not the invention of surgery, but the invention of new types of surgery and new technology that we have today will render many of the animals that were terminally ill in the times of the Mishnah are now considered they can live long, healthy lives in, in West Texas. What okay? about branding? Does that... Uh, does a, I mean, it could be an issue of Tzar Balachayim. That's a different question. Now to do cause pain to an animal for no good reason. So I don't know if that, that could be a problem of branding. But nothing it doesn't make it trafe. Yeah. won't make it a trafe unless, again, it goes through the skin, but I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, um, another, and the, and the opposite way is also true. You'll have many illnesses today that are, we consider terminal that in those, they are not listed on the list of 18 in the mission of Trefus. So this is not a new question. This was a question even a thousand years ago. The Rishonim discussed this, and there was many questions about how that worked. It doesn't seem to fit with um, the Talmud. So does the halacha change? Does the halacha change? Today, if you have an animal that's no longer considered terminal, do we say that now you can eat that animal? Okay, and there's a lot of discussion, by the way, within this parrot because it gets into anatomy and all these questions of illnesses. Can we transfer the same laws to humans? How do we define, what about human, let's say it says strafa for an animal, it's not discussing human, does that same illness now apply that a human is considered strafa? And it's relevant to halacha because halacha is if a human, if you kill a human strafa, it's not capital crime, it's, not, it's less, uh, it's not capital, so, the, so it's relevant there too. Can we try the guy for capital punishment if he killed someone who's terminally ill? And which terminal illnesses? So there's a lot of discussion of the overlap between animal illnesses and human illnesses, which is a fascinating topic unto itself. Um, uh, so we're not going to have enough time to discuss it. I'll just give you some now other two examples in the Shah. So first of all, another example is in the Gemara, it also discusses a clear contradictory contradiction to science, which is it says a drusa. That means, as we mentioned before, if something is attacked by another animal, it automatically is trafe. And the Talmud seems to imply that when it's attacked, what's the issue? When it's clawed, actually the word is clawed. When another, a, a mammal is clawed, or even a bird, by another bird, let's say a hawk attacks your chicken coop, or your, right, so the, all those chickens are now treif, if we saw the hawk attacking the chicken. Even though the chicken's alive, it's, it's great, it's doing well. So the automatic assumption is it's treif. So, uh, the Talmud implies that the issue is that it inserts some type of poison with its claws. That's seemingly the language of the Talmud. When it's clawing it, there's some type of poison comes out of the cloth. And that's clearly based on... Based on... We don't know. That's the question. What's it based on? And therefore, and therefore the question is, clearly we know that's not true today. So maybe there's no... This category of trafe shouldn't be applicable anymore. Okay, another example. I'm just going to say the examples of... That's a clear contradiction to science. The Talmud in Shabbat discusses... Um, that there's a certain type of lice that you're allowed to kill on Shabbat. As you know, one of the 39 prohibitions of Shabbat is you're not allowed to kill anything. Animals, cockroaches, tree roaches, um, other animals, other I humans see a cockroach on Shabbat. Kill <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're not Would you kill it in the synagogue? So Anywhere I find it. <laughs> so, uh, so the Talmud says this type of lice is permitted. Why? Because it doesn't, it uh, doesn't uh, have peruvu. It doesn't propagate. Um, there's no eggs, 
it's it's called uh, the scientific term for itself what they believe is spontaneous, spontaneous generation. generation they thought it was spontaneous generation and therefore it says if it, it's it's a less lower level creature if it doesn't reproduce therefore you're allowed to kill these these lice on Shabbat okay the question is now we know that it's wrong there's no such thing as spontaneous generation and therefore the there are eggs they're microscopic but does the halacha change now can we now kill those lice on Shabbat as the halacha says you can or do we say no they have the science wrong, and therefore it's prohibited to kill these lice on Shabbat. And a third example, um, I don't remember, one second. Eating fish and meat. Uh, well, fish and meat would be an example also, yes, that's discussed extensively, which is another example. The Talmud seems to imply that if you cook fish and meat together, it's, it's dangerous for your health, and you can't eat that fish and meat. Okay, and that's why we have, a, as some of us you might know, we have a custom, we serve fish on Shabbat in the meal, in the Shabbat dinner, you, you wash your mouth, you have the fish, you have separate plates, most kosher, even the HK requires, let's say you're having a, a buffet, so you have to have plates for the fish and plates, plates for the meat, because you that's can't... That's Talmud, of course. Yeah. Yes, that's Talmud. Today, yes, and today in science, we know that there's no such thing. In today's medicine, any doctor will tell you there's no such thing. Because it's Sakana, yes. So that's another question. So, like the so do we, and we seen many people keep this today. So the question is why? If science, medicine is telling you it's not. Um, and do some people not keep it today because the science yes. has changed? So that's an, and are the, are the authoritative people who, who don't keep it today because the science has changed? It's an important one. Well, this the is meat not and fish? our whole question today. The meat and fish is important? Which one is yeah, important? Yeah, the meat and fish thing. Why is that the most important to you? The no, it's because here we've got a situation <laughs> where the science did change. Yes, okay. And it, and, it, and it has changed. Yes, so that's the question. But uh, yeah, that's there's more the question. important questions than meat and fish. Who's keeping it? Who isn't? Okay, so th those are just some of the examples. Um, let me just see if I missed something. Kina B'Shabat, Jerusalem. My legs probably still keeping. Where's the fella? Oh, there's another another example in Talmud, which is that they said, for when you're making your Pesach matzos, the matzos for the Seder, is you have to use what's called Mayim Shalano. That means you have to have water that was taken out of the well over and kept overnight. You can't use water straight out of the well in the morning, because the Talmud says, listen to the Talmud, says because the water is heated at night, because the sun goes under the ground, and heats up the water under the ground, and we see the sun goes over the horizon, and going around and it's under yeah, the ground it's not, it's not and then <laughs> and it heats up the water and therefore you can't use that water to bake matzahs in the morning you have to take out the water the night before where it's cooled because heated water could make the chametz process um, accelerate so that would be another example you have been listening to the mp3 project from the jewish ethics institute for a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom.